Hello everyone and welcome to our show. Today we discuss more about storytelling, how you create and craft your story by using uh, narratives and create uh, brand awareness. I'm so excited to discuss this topic with Mark Morris. How are you? I'm well. I'm doing really well. You know, uh, I check out your profile. You have extended experience. Before we start, just tell more about uh, your background and why you decided to share with us about narratives as a brand building technique. Sure. So I started out in my to actually be an actor and I ran a theater studio for about 15 years, taught drama for 20 years, uh, did a lot of stage productions for about 25 years. That was my whole life was either acting or directing or writing or building something for the stage. So um, in 2010, the end of the housing collapse here in the U.S., uh, I basically lost my business. Um, the, I had to close the doors. Nobody was showing up. Uh, people stopped spending money. And when you're trying to run a for-profit theater, which is kind of a crazy thing to begin with, it's really tough. So uh, I ended up actually getting into freelance writing, which was something I'd been educated to do, but hadn't really done for a living yet. So I started into that, did a lot of marketing stuff up front, uh, ran a social media company for a couple of years, ended up writing a short book for a client there, and then kind of just moved over into... Um, ghostwriting books for people. I've done over 50 projects and essentially it is one of the greatest ways that I can find to build a legitimate, authentic personal brand. Um, it is, it's, it's really the only thing that we bring to the market Anatoly, which is our story. Okay. Everything mm -hmm. else can be yeah. duplicated. I don't care how special your product is or how secret, you know, your 11 herbs and spices, sorry, Colonel Sanders, you know, um, yeah, your chicken's still unique, but there's lots of chicken restaurants in the U.S. and around the world, and there are many who do a really good job. So the brand, though, if you notice, for that company is not the recipe anymore. It's actually the kernel. So, And that's a story, right? And if you go into one of their stores, you'll find his story plastered all over the wall because that is the brand. Um, and I think that there's examples of that just everywhere we look, and it's one of the best ways that I know of building a brand that really speaks to the audience that you are best suited to connect to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, love it, love it, love your experience. Actually, uh, I had the same experience in 2008 when I lost my business in Ukraine, you know, because I had a financial company, but the world crisis destroyed this company. Uh, you know, uh, my company helped other businesses to get banking loans, but uh, in one day, Ukrainian government decided to disallow all banking loans because, because of this crisis. That's okay. And yeah, I lost all my business even more. Uh, you know, I got debts like uh, 3,000 average salaries in Ukraine. It's a lot. And uh, I uh, worked five years to work hard, you know, to get back all these loans. Uh, after that, I decided not to take any loans anymore in my life. <laughs> so we will see. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's interesting about that. Uh, uh, I found uh, if you have uh, bad time, tough time, you can change direction completely uh, as you did. Uh, can you tell more about stories? How yes. to craft your story? Uh, how, where to start? For example, how to learn your customers, audience, and consider their interests by crafting the story? My approach actually, Anatoly, works from the opposite end. 
I think that mm -hmm. we put way too much focus on the market and not enough on the provider. So my actual bent is towards digging into like if I have a client that wants to write a book with me or produce a blog or do a podcast like this, sometimes I script podcasts. Uh, I go back into their story. I want to know about their history. I want them to dig into their history because a lot of times we don't even really know the value of our own stories. Okay. We're out here in the market. We're trying to talk to who we think is our target audience. But the problem with that is if we just connect it to the people who actually agree with us and want what we personally can provide, it's so much easier because I don't really have to arm wrestle my clients into working with me. They already know they want to. It's very similar to the way that you found me. They see my profile. They look at some of my content. They like my stuff. They like my style. So the way that I am teaching other people to build brand through story is the same way I am doing it, which is basically mm -hmm. telling my story and bringing what I think is value to the marketplace and not being so concerned about what everybody else out there is looking for and finding that niche, connecting to it and then fine tuning. So I go back and I do market research. I'm not saying I never do. Okay. In fact, when you go to write a book, you want to look to see are there people who are interested in reading this book? Now, some books you'll write just because you want to. Um, you know, there are, even in fiction, there are books and movies and, and stories that we've heard that are unique, right? They're different than everything else. They don't fit in a specific category. Um, and they appeal to a, you know, a very niche market. Uh, but when you're actually trying to build a business, you want to appeal to a wide enough group that you can actually do that. But one of the things that people miss is how many clients do they even need? You know, for me personally, as a book ghostwriter, you know, this, this nets me anywhere from about 12 to about $25,000 for each contract. Um, I don't need that many in a year. I need about six or eight really solid customers per year. So I need to find one every two months. That makes a big difference in how I can actually brand myself specifically as me versus trying to appeal to everybody, um, which is never very successful to begin with. Uh, and when you're trying to appeal to people who are unlike you, it gets really, really dicey. Uh, if you can't find some form of connection, there's no empathy, right? And that's what storytelling is about. One of the greatest things about storytelling is scientifically, when I tell you a story about myself, um, like I'm working on a piece right now about how I got started in in just this whole situation. And I went to a modeling, what I thought was an audition, and they were trying to recruit people to a school. And it was a school I'd actually heard of, but their name wasn't in the newspaper ad. This was way back in 1987 before the internet was even, Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, I suppose the closest thing we had was a movie called War Games back then. That was about as close as we got to thinking about computers being connected and talking to each other, you know? Um, and uh, it was, you know, in that moment that I realized I didn't want their brand of success in acting because they wanted to take all of my money. They wanted to represent me. They wanted to package me as something that they saw as attractive to the market. And all I wanted to do was be myself and tell stories. You know, I wanted to get on stage and I wanted to play parts that made sense for me. So I think that sometimes we worry so much about where our story is going to fit that we we reshape it until it doesn't look anything like us. Um, you know, we create this idea. We think that brand is like, uh, um, 
it's like an identity outside of yourself somehow. But I mm-hmm. don't think I I don't see that at all. I think that a brand it ends up becoming just like the people who manage it. It ends up becoming just like the people who build the product, just like the people who sell the product and just like the people who buy and use the product. Okay. So when you're creating a tribe like that, if you just tell the true story from the beginning, you can skip a lot of steps. You don't have to convince anybody that you fit. You actually fit. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course it makes sense. Uh, I I love your sharing, especially now when you mentioned that. Uh, I I agree with that. Uh, I often see when companies are overthinking, you know, what they need to do, how to run customers. But sometimes it's better to overact, you know, to check out, to test many different formats, styles. Uh, And yeah, uh, I think uh, I remember when Jeff Bezos shared uh, on uh, his meetings uh, in his companies uh, about uh, learning some uh, researches before uh, launching the product, he told, uh, guys, uh, nobody knows uh, what actually works. We need to test it. We need to check out why we are overthinking about that. So, yeah, uh, I, I like your style. And uh, can you tell more about uh, finding the goals of stories? For example, it's hard to measure a KPI, uh, what kind of results uh, uh, companies can ex- expect by creating their stories because for example uh when uh, i watch uh, the presentation of apple with tim cook and he shared uh, free, uh about apple watch yeah by the way i bought after that yeah for me you know uh, i can't buy one uh, pair i need to buy for my son for my wife because they probably kill me if i buy only for me so i need to buy three uh, apple watches and uh, he shared three stories how apple watch can help and decide your problems. He didn't right. share about features. He didn't share about uh, what Apple Watch can do. He shared three stories how uh, this Apple Watch can change your life. And right. you know, after watching this, you can Im- imagine, oh yeah, I wanna have it. I wanna change my life as well. Can you tell about KPI, about measuring KPI? Absolutely. So it's interesting that you bring up Apple because if we go back to his predecessor, Steve Jobs, who founded Apple, The first storytelling that he tried to do was all about the features. So when they started coming out with personal computers and they were competing against IBM because they were the only ones really in the market with a, you know, a computer that anyone could take home and put on a desk and and use, they put, you know, all of this information. It was like a, a full page ad in the New York Times. It had like over 300 features listed in it. You know, how fast it was, how much memory it had, all of the different processors that were in it, the the things that went into making it, all of the technical data, because he thought for sure that that was his audience, right? That he was Mm -hmm. selling to nerds. He was selling to guys who would understand what this technology was. It turns out that the builders are not always the users. Okay. Yeah. So he's talking to the technicians. He's talking to the guys in his lab who are inventing this stuff and he's building it. He's connecting with them and they're probably salivating. They're probably drooling all over themselves. (laughs) They're like, yeah, this is great, man. Look at all this power this thing has. Right. But then when he puts it out, it was crickets. There was nothing. They couldn't Mm -hmm. sell. They couldn't give it away. They could barely pay people to take them because why it sounded boring and nobody wanted that life. It sounded like drudgery. It sounded like work. It sounded like, you know, just another thing that was going to suck up their time and cost them a lot of money. But if you notice, Apple has slowed that way down. The next one that they did was just the Apple 
okay, for the Macintosh. And what did it say? Two words. Do you know what they were? Uh, think, think different. Yeah, yeah, no. And and what what happened? You know, he owned twenty percent of market share within a very short amount of time, which doesn't sound like a lot because compared to eight, you know, eighty percent of the market is Windows machines and other mm-hmm. systems like Linux and stuff like that. 20% of the market, basically 20 to 30%, it kind of fluctuates is Apple products, right? But that's one brand. And when you look at Windows machines, okay, this is why uh, Bill Gates stays in the software business because he figured out the operating systems were where he was going to make the money, not in building machines. There's not an actual Windows computer anywhere in the world. There's just Windows operating systems. But I'm I'm sitting here and I'm working on an HP. You may have an Acer, uh, you know, all of these companies produce machines that will run this system, but they don't corner like Hewlett Packard does not get 20% of the computer buys. I guarantee they don't, but Apple does because Mm -hmm. they told that story. So yes, it is about connecting to their need. And I think if you bring forward the need that you can meet best, that audience will find you. Okay. But you have to figure out what that is first. To me, if you can't figure out what your unique selling proposition is, if you can't go back and dig inside here to your DNA and figure out what business you should be in in the first place, then you're always going to struggle because it's going to be a game of reinventing yourself and trying to shape yourself to meet the market and make, you know, become a round peg so you can fit in the round hole instead of the square peg that fits in the square. (laughs) I don't want to be a peg. You know what I mean? If I'm going to differentiate myself, and we talk about this a lot, there's a concept called a blue ocean market. Are you familiar with this, Anatoly? No, no. Okay, so a blue ocean market is a market that you jump into that has zero competition. Mm -hmm, Okay. mm -hmm. Now, the way that you can do this is you can either be on the cutting edge and you can innovate and build something that's brand freaking new, right? Mm -hmm. Like recently, uh, one of my sons is is a... big time gamer. He had a YouTube channel that was really successful for a long time. And Mm -hmm. he has several of the VR headsets, right? Well, Oculus was the first ones to come out with that. Okay. Well, their machine was clunky. It didn't always function correctly, but it was the first machine that could give people this experience, even for just a few minutes, even though it didn't work as planned, it still bought them and you brought them into the market and it made them the name to beat. It's still the top brand. Okay. Because of that. Now, someone else came into the market and built a better machine, but it didn't really matter. They didn't have as many sales because they weren't the first ones there. When Oculus arrived, it was a blue ocean. It was wide open. Nobody had done it yet. A lot of people had talked about going there. It's just kind of like exploring back in the day when no one had conquered the globe yet, right? We hadn't mapped it all. So if you could be the first one to get there, if your name is Amerigo, you know, the Italian explorer who discovered America, supposedly. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously he didn't. There were guys here before him, but uh, you know, he was the one that had the balls to say, this is my place and I'm going to call it America. You know, that's, I mean, that's, that's some serious chutzpah right there. You know, it takes some guts to be, to be the one to claim that. And then people actually believe it and buy into it. And we're still calling it that, you know, all of these hundreds of years later. But uh, so, I mean, that's, that's what a blue market is. So if you want to be in a blue market, the only way to do that is to be yourself. Okay. If you're looking around and you're trying to imitate someone else, the best you can ever be is a cheap imitation of them. So the story you want to tell Anatoly is your story. It's the story of how you escaped Ukraine. It's about being in the financial business and recognizing that the loan industry was not for you. 
Um, you know, yeah. and right now in the U.S., what's the story we're telling about loans? It's college loans, right? Because it's predatory. It's it, they're the rules that they've allowed to be built around that are in, it, kind of insane. Not only do they charge a ridiculous amount of interest and penalties to where you can end up owing three, four, five, six times what you should have paid for college, but you cannot file bankruptcy on it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that and medical debt, those are the only two things you cannot get forgiven in this life here in the US. And so it's really complicated and people end up with, you know, mismanaging that. You couple that with the fact that I've got three kids in college right now. You send them there when they're 18, right? They're legally able to make their own decisions. People start handing out credit card, you know, forms on the first day of school. Literally, they get them in the mail before they even go on campus. They're asking them to borrow money. And all of the student loan companies immediately hitting them up, you know. And anytime you apply for a scholarship, where does that information go? It gets sold to student loan companies who approach you and say, we're going to help you do this. It's going to be so cheap to do this. And, you know, they make it sound really good, right? You won't have to work while you're in school. No, you'll just have to work your butt off after. Now, most of my kids have been able to avoid that. But I have a daughter who just graduated from veterinary medicine school, and that's extremely expensive. You know, because that's an eight year situation that she was in earning a college degree and then going to vet school on top of that. And now she is in her what they call rotational year where she's actually working as a vet, but she's still a trainee, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And she's going to end up with probably 70 to 80 thousand dollars worth of debt that she has to pay off when it's over. Yeah, it's just just the way it is. So, yeah, those those. and, And if someone can tell a story like Joe Biden is doing right now about fixing that, about making that better. And I don't know the best way to handle that. I'm not necessarily touting him. I'm not saying that, you know, he's a hero in this situation or whatever, but the story he's telling appeals to a ton of Americans right now. You know what I'm saying? It appeals to a lot of young people who don't want to pay it. It appeals to a lot of people in my generation who spent 10 or 12 or 15 years paying off those loans and don't want to see their kids go through that same kind of situation. So, it, it's it's got mass appeal to it, you know, and that is true. You you solve a person's problem and that story will connect. Nice, Did that nice. answer the question? <laughs> of course, 100%. Okay. I, I, I love how you can share uh, all these examples. It's like uh, you create the stories, you know, <laughs> many stories. So, uh, and you mentioned uh, about boring stuff. Uh, can you tell how to write attractive stories? Because, you know, I often see when people write stories, but it's boring. Uh, and uh, according to a few studies, uh, 80% of people leave content for a few seconds because they're not interested. We need to hook yeah. them to catch their attention. Can you tell about that? Yeah, actually, I did a podcast called The Eight Second Rule. Uh, a couple years back, I did like 67 episodes of that specifically about how to catch people's attention and how to hold on to it. Um, and the truth is that the reason people write boring stories is that they believe they are boring. Mm-hmm. They believe their life is boring. They believe the things that have happened to them are boring. They think that what they've been through is boring. No one wants to hear it. It doesn't connect with people. And so they go looking for a magic formula. Okay. So they're looking for celebrity. They're looking for fame. They're looking for a reason for people to celebrate them just for being famous. Right. Um, the Kardashians kind of broke the mold on this. You know, they were the ones that first stepped into the limelight because, uh, one of them, 
I think was OJ's attorney. And it was this whole spills down from there, you know, and then they, you know, Bruce Jenner marries into the family and decides that he's Caitlyn Jenner. And it's just all of this stuff. So there's a lot of interesting drama there to be sure, but mostly they made a lot of money. They led in some areas in fashion. They didn't do much of great importance to change society. And yet they are a household name, right? So if you look at reality television, this is a perfect example, Anatoly. We just had a president, you know, who basically built his reputation on reality television. And the things that it depicts, they, if you take them just at their face value, are not that exciting, okay? Mm-hmm. They're stupid little arguments between people. They are manipulative situations that are set up to either make them succeed or fail or be funny or whatever, It's all contrived. It's all a game that we play to make it look more interesting. But the truth is their lives are not that different than the rest of us. They get up in the morning, they eat breakfast, they put on pants. The difference is when they tweet something, 50,000 people say, yeah, and retweet it for them. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's That's the big difference. And I think that people miss the excitement in their own lives. Just from what you've told me about yourself so far, You've been through a lot of stuff that I have no clue about, okay? Mm-hmm. First of all, you immigrated to the United States. I don't know what that feels like. I was born here, you know? Yeah. That's that's something I've never experienced. I've only been out of the country like three or four times. I've been to uh, – I went to Paris. Uh, I've been to Mexico, and I've been to the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And all of those were mostly, you know, in vacation areas. So yeah. I don't know what real life is like. I have no clue what what Ukraine is like other than what I see on the news. And I'm sure that that is a a completely skewed depiction of what goes Mm -hmm. on there. Um, Just as I'm sure that before you came to the United States, that the pictures you were shown, the images that you had and the the stories that you had about what it was like here uh, don't match up to reality. You know, they either looked much better or they looked much worse because we tend to tell stories in extremes and we stay out of this middle ground. Okay, we think of something is not exciting enough or it's not sexy enough or it's not, you know, wealthy enough or big enough or bold enough or sad enough or depressing enough. Because now there's a trend like you and I connected over LinkedIn. Right. And on LinkedIn, there's a trend toward telling your sob story. Okay, you know, yeah, I was a drug Mm -hmm. addict for 50 years and I ruined everyone's life and now I'm great. And. Everybody's like, yay, good job, drug addict. <laughs> Meanwhile, me, who never got into that kind of stuff, I'm looking at that going, well, I can't tell that story. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so it's easy to compare what other people are doing and saying and think, oh, well, this is how you tell a good story because people paid attention to this story. But it's really about how it's told. Okay? It's about catching the imagination. Um, it is about taking someone on a journey with you and making them want to know what comes next, making them curious. And here's what science tells us about storytelling. This is really super cool. If you sit and listen to someone tell a story, okay, and you're paying attention, you're connected to it, you're really into it, they've actually done this. They've put uh, EKG monitors or EEG, sorry, EKG is the heart, EEG Mm -hmm. monitors on their brains, right? The little electrodes it's a little cap it looks like a Russian Russian cosmonaut with all the little wires coming off of it and you know if you put that on both persons you know a, a teller and a listener here's what you find out the teller's brain waves come first right they are creating the model but when the listener connects to the story 
their brainwaves start to repeat the same pattern that the teller's brainwaves repeat. It's literally mind control, Anatoly. It's literally mm -hmm. changing that person's perception of you. And here's something really interesting. You're asking me about how you tell a story, but I am more interested in why you should tell your story. And this is mm -hmm. what I think is really beautiful. Okay. Before I met you, you existed to me as an abstraction, one LinkedIn mm -hmm. message. And then I kind of looked at your profile a little bit, didn't get a lot from that. But now I know that you are from the Ukraine. I know you've been in the financial market. I know you still have a business there and it's, you haven't said what it is, but it's something other than finance because you're not doing loans anymore. So you've got to be somewhere, but I would guess you're probably still dealing with something to do with finance, even if it's not making loans, uh, because you're already in that industry. Um, so I can make some guesses about you, right? But you only exist as the story that I am currently telling myself, and I'm going to probably murder your last name, but I'm going to try it. Okay, here we go. Anatoly Ulitovsky. <laughs> Is that even close? Say it for me. Uh, almost. <laughs> Ulitovsky. Ulitovsky. Ul okay. Yeah. Ulitovsky. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Anatoly Ulitovsky. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, because Russian feels very foreign to me, right? I don't, or mm -hmm. that, that, or that Slavic, uh, I know it's Ukrainian, but I, that Slavic language mm -hmm. feels very foreign in my mouth because we don't shape our words the same at all. Uh, yeah. it's kind of like a, a white guy trying to speak Mandarin, you know, it's, it's really awkward. It doesn't, <laughs> yeah. doesn't work well, a white American. Uh, okay. So, but you only existed as the story I was telling myself about you. And all mm -hmm. I knew about you was that you were a podcaster who wanted me on your show and you said you'd had Neil Patel on. I was like, sure, I'll go on any show Neil Patel's willing to be on. That's cool. <clears throat> um, so that was it. You know, I didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. I've got an hour. That's fine. Let's do it. So in, in your mind, you existed only as a story you were telling about me. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Now, I've had a chance to share some of my story with you and I could share a lot more and that would change your perception of me. It could either be good or bad, but you would now have a better idea of who I see myself to be because that's the mm -hmm. story I tell about me. Okay. So there's the story other people tell about you and there's a story you tell about yourself. And that's really all you are. I mean, as far as interrelating with other people. So if you are not telling your own story and totally, then they are stuck with just whatever story they are telling about you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love it. Love your explanation. Uh, I have the question about uh, your background. I can see books. Can you tell about your loving books and how they can help <laughs> you to, <laughs> to create stories? <laughs> so some of these are really interesting. Um, yeah, you know what? This one, this one played a big role in my life. It's called Act One. It's by a guy named Moss Hart, who was a famous American playwright in the early 20th century. And there mm -hmm. is a, an interesting note on the front of here. Mm -hmm. and, um, it nice. says, uh, sending my best from New York. Sorry, it took me so long to get this back to you, Carly. Carly was an acting student of mine when she was in junior high and high school. And she borrowed this book from me when she was a student. And then she left for college and she left for New York to start her own production company. And this inspired her to actually do that. Because in this story, what he shares is that there was already this way of doing things. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, if you wanted to be a famous playwright, you had to go through this, you know, different, there were different ways of getting there. 
right? What he decided, uh, he went after, let's see, he went after a guy named Kaufman, okay? Because Kaufman was the number one playwright in the United States of America. He was the guy. He was, he was the king of Broadway. Uh, you know, the best shows were his and the ones that didn't have his name on them, he'd been brought in to consult with the writers. Um, you know, he was the dude, right? He was the one who was setting the bar for comedy in the United States of America. So this guy, Moss Hart, he's a nobody, all right? He starts mm -hmm. out when he's like 16, 17 years old. He goes to this volunteer drama group in New York City somewhere just to get his feet wet. He thinks he wants to be an actor, I think was the story, right? Well, the person who's supposed to direct the group never shows up. So three or four people come, you know, the first time and they're like, well, what do we do? This guy, this kid, this ballsy person decides he's going to run the group. Nobody mm -hmm. else is doing it. So he suggests that they try some activities or different things, right? So he starts into this process. I think he ends up directing a play with them. And he'd never done anything before, ever. He loved it. He thought it was really cool. Then he decides he's going to try his hand at writing some stuff. His, his grandmother used to take him to see plays on Broadway when he was a kid. They would get the cheap seats, sit way in the back in the balcony. Um, but, you know, for him, this was just like going to dying and going to heaven right getting to see all this and so he was watching these famous actors he was seeing all these big shows and he started working on his own stuff well he got something that he thought was pretty good and he thought well i want to do something with this so he started submitting it around nobody would read his stuff he finally decided that if he really wanted to be a, a playwright the guy who needed to read his lines his his what they called sides his script was kaufman this guy named Kaufman. Mm -hmm. okay well, he's untouchable. I mean, this would be like getting in to see Steven Spielberg today, right? Um, but he decides that this guy Kaufman is his target. And so he starts showing up and bringing this script with him and trying to get this guy to read it. Finally, he bugs him so much that he says, okay, fine, I'm going to read this. And he reads some of it and he, and he sends it back and it's all marked up. And Moss Hart is just crushed. He's like, oh, I, I suck. My work is shit. I can't do anything right. This guy, he hates me. He thinks I'm terrible. And then he gets a message and the, and he says, well, are you coming? And he's like, what? He goes, yeah. Uh, if we're going to work on this, you're going to have to be here. So you need to come on over. He's like, what? He's like, yeah, your play. You wanted help, right? You wanted to work on it. You wanted to write this. Well, if you want to write this, you need to get over here now. So he like jumps in a cab and he goes across <laughs> town and he starts working with this famous guy. Well, mm -hmm. here is the beauty of it. There are several plays in the American lexicon of theater now that are written under the name Kaufman and Hart. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because they partnered up and they ended up doing some of my favorite comedies from the 1920s and thirties. Right. Um, I don't know if you've heard of any of them. The one that I remember the most is uh, it, it's called The Man Who Came to Dinner. Okay. And this was a, made into a famous movie. Uh, I think Jimmy Stewart was in it, if you know who he was. Um, so this, this kid who was a nobody, he just walks in and decides he's going to do it. Okay. Because he believed that he had this ability to do this and he just had a passion for it. All right. Yeah. Well, then he ends up partnering with a composer named Richard Rogers. Okay. So Rogers and Hart, they start owning Broadway, you know, the, the light opera is what they called it. Then they weren't really musicals yet. And then we get to a show 
that changes everything. Have you ever been to see a Broadway musical? Yeah, one time in New York. Okay, okay yeah. cool. Well, if you know anything about musicals at all, you've probably heard the name Rodgers and Hammerstein. Uh, I'm not familiar. Okay. Do you know the? Do you know what the show Oklahoma is? Uh no, I'm not the, good the, with that. The sound, the sound of music. Uh, I'm not good with okay. that. You're not Sorry. a theater guy. That's okay. Yeah. They basically invented mm -hmm. musical theater. Okay, their show Oklahoma changed the entire genre because this guy right here walked into a volunteer drama group, decided he could do this wrote mm -hmm. a stupid play and took it to a famous writer and said, teach me how to do this. And the guy did. Yes. Nice. That's how your it. story can, can impact people. <laughs> okay. And then I'm teaching drama, right. To this kid. I buy this little company in Oklahoma city. I had about a thousand students over the years. She goes to New York and starts a production company. Mm -hmm. Now I don't know who she's worked with since then. But somewhere along the way, one or the other of us or someone that she teaches or somebody else I taught inspired someone famous. We don't know it yet. We don't know who they are yet, but we will. And we're going to hear their name and we're going to know that that's, there's a connection there. Okay. And it's because I lived into the story that I believed about myself. Okay. Nice. I didn't go to school for drama. I went to school to be a writer. Um, I didn't... Uh, I didn't really have any credentials other than I took some drama classes and started acting. That was it. I just jumped in with both feet. I refused to sign the contract with the modeling agency that wanted all my money. I didn't take that route. I went a different way. I looked around. I said, well, there's lots of theater to be done and they're, they're always wanting bodies. So I went and did it. I didn't worry about it. You know, I ended up buying my own facility and building my own theater and running my own company. Nice. Was I, nice. was I as famous as this guy? No. No, not even close. Nobody knows who I am. <laughs> but, well, yeah. but his story is connected to mine. Because when I read his book, Anatoly, what it did for me was it said, okay, well, you know what? Things haven't changed that much since the 1920s. I mean, I get that it's a little different now than it was then. Theater is obviously a bigger industry. There's a lot more money in it. So you have to believe that there's probably more competition. But there's also more productions, which means there's more opportunity. Yeah. So my thinking was, if he can do it, so can I. Nice. Love it. Love it. Yeah. I, I can see your acting background. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, it's like watching uh, TV or movie. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I have the question about, uh, you mentioned about uh, to be yourself. You know, I, I often see when uh, companies or uh, content creators, trying to copy others. No, they uh, right. copy some influencers who can get high engagement, but uh, they can't get the same engagement because they play others. Can you tell more about being yourself? How to craft your style to consider your preferences before creating any content or share stories? You have to eliminate the idea that you're going to craft it or shape it. Mm -hmm. you, you just have to exist. You have to learn to follow your your curiosity. Number one, mm -hmm. whatever you're curious you're you're curious about about yourself, about the world, dive into that. Okay, become a student mm -hmm. of it. You have to investigate that, and then you have to activate a plan. That's it. There's there's nothing else to it, and every other system tries to complicate it. But if it doesn't start from in here, 
let's just say it gets huge. We've seen these people. Okay. We know what they end up like. They're into yeah. drugs and alcohol. Their lives are destroyed. They usually end up either dying early or leaving their field entirely to go and do something else that makes them happy. Or they're miserable and they never rise above middle management and they just get stuck there and they live out, you know, their life and they retire and five years later they're dead because they didn't have anything to live for. Why? Because they were trying to live into somebody else's dream instead of actually being here and living their own story out loud. So crafting it is the problem. What you need mm -hmm. to do is just get out there and say whatever's in here. Okay. Look at the world. Ask yourself questions. If you don't know anything, then your content can be all about learning it. Okay. If you're starting out, that's a great place to be. Then just position yourself as a student and start asking people who know. Do something like this, this podcast where you just get people to come and tell you things, right? When I write books with people, um, for example, this year, I wrote a book with, let's see, uh, a project manager. I wrote a, I'm writing with a guy who is in uh, construction, like commercial construction. Um, I'm about to write with a lady who does... Uh, um, diversity and inclusion work. Mm -hmm. uh, and every single time that I sit with these people, it usually is about a 40 to 60 hour process, okay, of interviewing them and kind of getting their information and then writing and fine tuning and working it through. It's like being in a master's seminar, though. And I'm working with a guy right now who is uh, in mergers and acquisitions, something I know nothing about. But he's also a mind power coach who coaches elite golfers. I don't know anything about that, but I'm going to. By the time I'm done with his book, I will understand as much as I can about it without actually being a golfer myself because I've tried that. I'm not good at it. I don't enjoy it. <laughs> it's not my thing. <laughs> yeah. I, to I told him that. I was like, you know, I, I understand enough about golf to know what the clubs are. I I've been on a course. I've played, I think, a total of three rounds in my whole life. And, and I, if I die without ever playing again, I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the guy who's a project manager, their company is having their 15 or five year uh, anniversary. And I'm going to an event that they're having, you know, in a city about an hour from me. And uh, I told them because they had a golf tournament. I said, OK, I'll come for the party. I'll come for the hors d'oeuvres. You know, I'll come and meet your people and shake their hands. I'm not going to play golf. Yeah, <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> He's like, I totally understand. <laughs> He's, and then he goes, it is for charity. I said, I don't care. I'll write a check. I'm not, I'm not, that is not yeah. a kind of personal humiliation I need on that day. So, yeah, for, but that's, you, that's know, it. I, you have mm -hmm. to, you have to give up the idea that you're going to be something else Yeah, because you can either be Anatoly or you can be a cheap imitation of something else. And that's it. That's the only two yeah. options you have. Um, <laughs> and if you choose the second option, then you're probably going to do that until you figure out how to be Anatoly anyway, which you could yeah. have just shortcut the process and be Anatoly or you're going to get stuck and it's going to hurt and it's going to suck and it's going to be awful. And the more, here's the worst part, the more success you have at being someone else, the more miserable you're going to feel. Yeah. yeah. There was a guy uh, recently, Dan Price. Do you, are you familiar with him? 
He's the CEO uh, that no, bragged about no. having a, a $70,000 minimum wage in his company. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nice. But it turns out the whole time that he was very abusive to women, like mm -hmm. criminally abusive to women and mm -hmm. treated his employees like crap and many, many other things about him. There was something that didn't fit in the way he was living his life. Okay. He was pretending to be really authentic and genuine. And this was his brand and it was all about him. And he was, you know, the real deal, but it was all bullshit. Yeah. And, and this yeah. happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I often get the question, for example, uh, what kind of content to create on LinkedIn because it's like business, social media, B2B. I reply to them, don't limit yourself with some, uh, I don't know, some, uh, the best practices or anything else. Be yourself. It so matter. here's what yeah. they need to do. They need to entertain people. They need to educate people. They need to enlighten people. If your mm -hmm. content is providing usable advice, actionable content, okay, you're not just selling, 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 selling. It will connect with some people. I know guys on there who do nothing. Literally, there's a guy who has built up like a following of about 50,000 people. All he does is stupid dad jokes and bad puns that's his entire platform okay mm -hmm. i i don't even know I've, I've been following his content and commenting on his stuff for years i haven't even paid attention to what he actually does i know he just got a really good job doing it because people liked his attitude liked his style and his spirit but he doesn't pay any attention to that at all like it is it's, it's just like a freaking li live comic strip on his site every day i know a guy who is a uh, he's a, he just became a freelance writer. He's amazing. His name is James Lorraine. Um, he is a, an electric electrical engineer, really, really bright, like science nerd guy. Right. He writes this content that's super goofy, but it explains mm -hmm. very complex technical concepts in a fun way. He gets nice. tons and tons and tons of views and tons of hits on his stuff. Nice. And what I find is when I'm most true to myself, when I stop trying to manipulate and I really just listen to what's in here, my views start going back up, you know, and I do all right all of the time because I keep stuff out there and I've got a big following. But, um, yeah, that's when I find that I do the best. Nice. Love it. Love it. Uh, Mark, I have the final yeah. question. Uh, uh, let's imagine you started from scratch without any experience, knowledge, skills. What would you do to learn more about uh, creating, writing stories? I would start exactly where I started in life and I would read mm -hmm. as many books as I could. Mm -hmm. I would read and read and read and read and read. When I was seven years old, the TV blew up. We didn't get another one until I was in the 10th grade. I read 1500 books. Nice. No one had to tell me what a story was. No one mm -hmm. had to tell me how to tell one. They didn't have to teach me anything. When I went to school, I learned a lot of stuff that I've discarded and I learned a lot of stuff that just confirmed what I already knew. And that's what I would do. I would just, whatever content you want to learn about, consume it. You want to mm -hmm. make movies, watch movies and listen to movie makers. You want to write books, read books and listen to book writers. Um, it's not complicated. Yeah, love it, love it. Yeah, Mark, it's a big pleasure uh, to get on my show, to learn from you. Tell our audience how they can reach out to you, learn more about you, follow you. Yeah, so Mark R. Morris Jr. is me. Pretty much anywhere that you find that online, that's me. 
Uh, but especially on LinkedIn, I'm there all the time. And if you send me a message, I will respond. So that's the best way. Okay, guys, you can find all these links in the description below. Listen to us on Apple, Google, Spotify. Thanks again for your time. A big pleasure. Uh, I love your style, you know, by sharing all these examples. Uh, yeah, it's like sharing stories. Okay, guys, thanks for listening and watching us.